Somebody asked me uh, how many years we've been married. We were married 34 years. Somebody asked me yesterday, how can you be only 45 years old and been married 34 years? I said, well, I belong to this Mormon cult. <laughs> but I believe the uh, Weaver's class starts next week at 11 o'clock, and I'm supposed to go from this class, when I finish this class, over there and teach their first class on marriage. So, uh, I don't know what I'm going to say. I better take Lynn along with me, don't you like I was watching television last night, got home late and flipped the television on to one of these religious stations, and maybe you saw this as well, but a very famous pastor, if I mentioned his name, you'd all know the names, uh, stood up on the platform and uh, reached into this big container and picked out tortillas and flipped them out in the audience like frisbees. <coughs> Started flipping these tortillas out. And uh, I just sat there and I thought, can you imagine Jesus uh, speaking in the church, flipping tortillas out? This, he wasn't doing this to pass food out. He wasn't multiplying the bread or anything like that. He was just going to make some sort of object lesson. I thought, this is ridiculous. This is the point that the church of Jesus Christ has come to in the 21st century. Absolutely amazing. So I really consider it a pleasure when we were able to, and an honor, to be able to just take the Bible and open it up and just go down the scriptures verse by verse, Amen. you know, untarnished, <laughs> with a very little comment, and just see what the, what the Word of God uh, says to us. You know, people use this Bible in various ways. And uh, they'll give you a guideline for like how to get from Sunday to Sunday, and like there's a secret principle in here. You know, this book is a history lesson. It starts with, in the beginning, God created. and tells us how God created the earth and everything in it and people. And it ends with God's final destination for man and woman. So it's a history of the human race. Uh, how God created everything perfect, man sinned, and how God is redeeming history. He's not only redeeming people, He's not only giving us a new nature and recreating us, but he's going to create, recreate everything, the whole world, nature itself. until, And he's going to set up a kingdom on earth where he rules. And so from beginning to end, it's all about God redeeming creation. And when we read the scriptures, we discover where we fit into this story. It's a story that has a beginning and an end. Right now in that story, it's June 8th. 2008. That's where the story is. It ends at the end of Revelation, when I don't know where that ending is. But I know where we fit into that story on June the 8th. And he has a purpose for us. And we are to help him move history toward its goal. And that's what the scripture is about. So let's take our Bible and open up to Luke chapter 9. And we're going to pick up at verse 28. Now the Gospel of Luke tells us about Jesus' place in history and what Jesus, how God used Jesus to bring about his kingdom on earth. And now we're going to be at verse 28. Now last week we saw the confession of Jesus. The confession of Jesus. 
This week, we're going to see the transfiguration of Jesus. And these two events have some things in common. Last week, in the confession of Jesus, Peter spoke. This week, Peter's going to speak. The only person that spoke last week among the apostles was Peter. The only person that speaks this week is Peter among the apostles. Last week, Peter spoke brilliantly. He had tremendous insight. This week, Peter puts his foot in his mouth. <laughs> so they have this, com you know, this, uh, this, co this common thread. Last week, we saw that the apostles... Uh, got a glimpse into Jesus' identity. This week, we see that they get a further glimpse into Jesus' identity. Last week, they said, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. That's who he is. He's God's king that's going to set up a kingdom. This week, they get a glimpse into his nature. They see his glorious nature as he's transfigured before them. And both of these events, last week's and this week's, uh, deal with the kingdom of God. We ended last week on verse 27, which says, this is chapter 9, verse 27, but I tell you truly that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. So last week's section dealt with the kingdom of God. This week we're going to get a picture of what the kingdom of God is going to look like on the Mount of Transfiguration. God, when he sets his kingdom up, it's going to have certain qualities and certain characteristics. And in this Mount of Transfiguration scene, only some get to see it. The others don't. Just three get to see it. The rest will eventually die, and they won't get to see the kingdom until the same time that we do. But three got a glimpse into what that kingdom is like. So let's go down verses 28 through 36, go down verse by verse, and we'll start off at verse 28, and when we do, we will answer several questions. <clears throat> Look at how verse 28 opens. It answers when. When. A when question. Now it came to pass, when? About eight Days after these sayings, after Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ. Now who? It came to pass eight days after these sayings that he took who? Peter, James, and John. Where? Up to a mountain. The mountain's not identified because the mountain's not important. The important thing is not the mountain, it's what happens on the mountain, okay? So, when? Eight days, right? Who? Peter, James, and John. Where? A mountain. Why did they go to the mountain? Look at the end of verse 28. Jesus took them up there to what? To pray. That's why they went to the mountain. Now, what happened on the mountain? Look at verse 29. And as he prayed... The appearance of his face was altered. Matthew says his face looked like the sun. And his robe became white and glistening. That's what happened. Now I want you to notice in verses 28 and 29, prayer is mentioned both times. 
The end of verse 28, pray, and then verse 29, as he prayed. Okay. Prayer was mentioned last week. It says Jesus and his disciples got away and he prayed, and then Peter gives the confession. So it seems like that the revelation of who Jesus is, his true identity, comes as a result of God answering Jesus' prayer. Jesus is praying, and when he does, God opens the eyes of his disciples to his true identity. Now, I want you to notice the order of this transformation that takes place in verse 29. First, it says, his face was altered, and then second of all, it says, his robe became white and glistening. In other words, first, his skin changed, and then his garments changed. So what came first? His skin. That's his person. That's his person. He was changed. Matthew says that a metamorphosis took place. A metamorphosis took place. There was a, a change that started on the inside and worked its way out like a butterfly coming out of a cocoon. And so, in a sense, Jesus became transparent. What was on the inside could be seen. And it begins to exude out of his person. And it envelops him. And so what is on the inside of the person of Jesus comes out, his face is changed, and then it envelops his clothes. His clothes begin to change. And so what's on the inside burst out. So it's like a sunburst. Where it just comes, you've seen pictures of sunburst. You've seen these pictures of superheroes or something, and suddenly there's like a sunburst comes out of them. Well, that's what happens right in front of these guys' eyes. So that's what happens. Now look at verse 30. And behold, Luke says, Look! Now what he wants to do is he wants to draw us into the story so we can see the picture unfold just the way the apostles saw it unfold. And so notice he's writing to us, his readers. He says, look, he's trying to grab our attention. What does he want us to see? Look, verse 30. Two men talked with him. Who were they? Jesus isn't alone. Moses and Elijah. Now these two men are identified. Why does, why does Luke identify them? First of all, he identifies them because of their place in history. Moses, the great lawgiver. Elijah, the great prophet who performs miracles. So, because of their place in history. These are two very important people. One representing the law, one representing the prophets. But I really think that he's letting us know this, who they are, because he's letting us know that public opinion has been wrong in the past. Now remember last week, if you were with us, Jesus takes a public opinion poll. And he says, who do men say that I am? And you remember the answer? Some say you're John the Baptist come back from life. Some say you are Elijah. Or another prophet, like Moses. And guess what? Now the transfiguration takes place, and look, two men are with him, 
One Moses and one Elijah. And guess what that means? Jesus isn't Moses. And Jesus isn't Elijah. Public opinion is wrong. So that's what they're doing here. I think Lucas wants us to understand this. Now look what it says in verse 31 about these guys. Moses and Elijah. Who appeared in glory. They appeared in glory. Now there's a difference between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Jesus was transfigured and the glory that was in him burst forth. But these guys appear what? In glory. Not the glory in them. They're in the glory. The glory is an outer glory and guess what? They sort of step into this glory. It's like they're basking in the sun. The sun isn't in them. They're taking in the sun. So when the guys look up there are these two men, and they are somehow surrounded by this glory. Okay? And look what they were talking about. They spoke of his decease, Jesus' decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, that's the theme of their discussion. Now, that word decease, some translations say departure, other translations translate it exodus. They were discussing his exodus that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. So, how should we translate it? They were discussing his death or they were discussing his exodus? Which one do you think would be best? Well, we don't know which one will be best. And I think that Luke writes it in this ambiguous way because there's a sense in which Jesus is seen as a liberator who is leading an exodus. And he's going to accomplish that through his death on the cross, which will happen in Jerusalem. So Jesus here, in a sense, is pictured as a liberator who's going to free people from bondage in all of its guises. <laughs> He's going to lead people who are in bondage to sin, Satan, government forces, habits, any, all, all of this, these things. He's going to free them and lead them in an exodus. Just as Moses led the people out of Egyptian bondage in the Exodus, and they were freed, and he was a liberator. Jesus said, remember in Luke 4, one of the most important passages in Luke's Gospel, as he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the who? captives. He said that he came to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So, on the mount, suddenly there appears Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about Jesus, who's going to accomplish an exodus and free people through his death on the cross. What God, this is why I said the Bible's a history book, what God was doing way back in the days using Moses and then using Elijah he is going to accomplish ultimately through Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's why the scriptures say 
and the law and the prophets point to Jesus Christ. In Christ are fulfilled all the law and the prophets. God has progressively been freeing people from bondage, and he has a goal in history, and history is moving toward that goal, and Moses moved it along a little bit, and the prophets moved it along a little bit more and told about the end-time goal in history, and Jesus is going to accomplish that goal through his death on the cross, and he will lead another exodus. Now, these are the facts of the transfiguration. These are the facts. This is what is seen. Now you need to look at the human response. Look at the reaction. Look at verse 32. But, now watch this. You just saw the facts. We see the, we've seen the facts in verse 28 and 29 and 30 and 31, exactly the same as the apostles did. Luke has given us the story right there in capsule form. Now watch the human reaction. But Peter and those who were with him, that would be James and John, were heavy with sleep. They're groggy. Jesus is praying and they are sleeping when these events are happening. So I can actually say we have a better picture of the facts than they did. Unless you're sleeping. If you're sleeping, well, obviously you've missed the story a little bit too. They are sleeping. How many times has this happened to them where Jesus has been praying and they've been sleeping? How many times has it happened to us? Where we start praying and we go to sleep. You know, when you start sleeping, when you should be praying, you miss the things that God's doing right in your midst. You miss the miracles that are happening right in your midst. And they have missed some of these things. So what it says in verse 32 is, but Peter and those who were with him were asleep or were groggy, literally. And when they were fully awake, they sort of got, something jarred them out of their lethargy. When they were fully awake, they saw, look, his, that's Jesus' glory, and the two men who stood with him. And I think that they were standing in his glory. That's why they were basking in his glory or basking in his glory. It was his glory coming out and they were standing in it. And suddenly they woke up and they went, whoa! <laughs> and they see this glory coming out of Jesus and Moses and Elijah standing there. But they come in on the tail end of the event. Do you get that? Because they were sleeping. They only come in on the tail end of the event. Then it happened, verse 33, as they, that would be Moses and Elijah, were parting or leaving from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Or to put it another way, you're really lucky that we're here. <laughs> you know, it's, you're really, you, it's really good that we're here. It's, it's, it's good for your benefit. That's what this means. It's not that it's good for us. It's good for us to be here because if it weren't for us, you'd be in trouble because we're going to do something for you. So watch this. You're lucky that we're here. End of verse 33. And let us make three tabernacles, or tents, dwellings. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you, 
and one for you. Now what's going on here? Peter says, it's, it's good that we're here. We're going to make three tents. One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Now why do they want to make these tabernacles or tents? Now, there's a couple explanations here, and uh, one of them may be a little better than the other. But when Moses led the Exodus, the Jews lived in the wilderness. You know what they lived in? Tents. Little tabernacles, portable tents. That's where they lived for 40 years. And um, every year they would celebrate a feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a celebration of Israel's history and how when they were in the wilderness, God took care of them and gave them their provisions and so forth. Now, it might be that this event, this transfiguration, happened during the Feast of Tabernacles week. Now, on the Feast of Tabernacles, if you could get back to Jerusalem, you're within 100 miles and you know, circumstances were correct, and you could get back to Jerusalem, you and maybe 100 or 200,000 other Jews would go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But if you couldn't get back there, well, then what you did is you just built a tabernacle or a little booth or tent in your own backyard. And during that week, guess what you had to do? Move out of your house and live in the tent in the backyard. Now, I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood called Pimlico where the, Prick the Prickness run. Watched the Belmont Stakes yesterday and how the jockey pulled the horse up. <clears throat> I've seen many horse many. Many horse races that were jockeys, for some reason, unknown, pulled their horse up in Pimlico. I lived in Pimlico. It was a Jewish neighborhood. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, back, in fact, about a month before the Feast of Tabernacles, all the Orthodox Jews in my neighborhood would go into the backyard, and they would start getting branches off of trees and leaves and odd pieces of lumber, and they would start constructing a little booth. And then on the Feast of Tabernacles, they would go out and they would eat their supper in that feast, and that represented them celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. This could have happened on the Feast of Tabernacles. They're not back in Jerusalem. Peter says, it's lucky that you're, well, we're here because we have to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and you need somebody to build you some tents. <laughs> so that's one explanation. But explanation number two maybe make more sense. Not quite as fun, but it makes more sense. It may be that Peter wants to prolong this experience. Because notice the context in verse 33. It happened as Moses and Elijah were what? Parting. They were leaving. Peter wants to prolong this thing. He says, let me, uh, don't let this moment slip away. Let me just make you some tents. You can stay here overnight. And he wants to prolong seeing this thing that he got in on the, on the tail end of. But we're not sure. But that's what he says in verse 33. Let's make some tents for you three guys. Now, Luke gives us his comment at the end of verse 33. He puts in what we call an interjection. He says this, not knowing what he talked about. <laughs> not knowing what he said. In other words, Luke is saying, Peter said that speaking out of pure ignorance. 
say. Uh, he's saying if you could imagine the dumbest thing possible that anyone could say, Groggy Peter came up and this is what he came up with. It was the classic old Peter foot in the mouth scenario right here. So Luke gives you that. Luke just gives you that little side. He gives you his opinion here. He just wants you to know. He's saying, in my opinion, this was, a, this was the stupidest spit to say something like that. Okay. Now he gets back to his story in verse 34. While he, that's Peter, was saying this. Notice, right? Peter said, I think we'll make three sets. One for you, Moses. I think we're going to, here's the design. And he starts talking. And right in the middle of his sentence, something, he's interrupted just like that. Notice what it says there in verse 34. While he was speaking, right in the middle of the sentence, there's a divine interruption. A cloud came down like a fog and overshadowed them. Can you imagine this? Just Suddenly as you're talking, suddenly this cloud comes down. Maybe you can even sort of feel it. And you look up and there's this cloud that just comes down and suddenly this totally overshadows you. And you can't even see your hand in front of your face. The fog and the clouds that thick. It must have been an eerie thing right in the middle of the sentence for this to happen. <clears throat> and it says they were fearful as they entered the cloud. It's who entered the cloud? Not Jesus. Not Mo. <laughs> not Elijah. But the apostles. Suddenly as Peter was coming up with his grand scheme... <laughs> which he thought was pretty ingenious. Uh, this cloud comes down, overshadows them, and they just go up. And they, their breath is taken away. Now, you know from Old Testament passages that clouds often represent God's presence. He, he led Israel by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and usually represents God's presence that can be seen and felt. It's called a theophany. And theophanies in the Bible often bring fear and and this is what's happening at this situation. Now look at verse 35. This is great. And a voice came out of the cloud. The voice of God. You talk about surround sound? I mean, this is, I mean, this is, this is like you know, surround sound. But you can't see anything. All you hear is this voice. You can't see your, face, your hand if it was that close. But you hear suddenly this booming sound coming out. And it said, This is my son. This is my son. So then we know that's God speaking. How do we know that? Because those are the same words that God spoke at Jesus' baptism. Only at Jesus' baptism, Jesus was the only one that heard the words. Now, the apostles, these three apostles, hear the words. This is my son. Now remember when we dealt with that, Saying that Jesus is God's son means Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's representative on earth. He's going to set up the kingdom of God. So, in the confession that we saw last week regarding Jesus' identity, we had human affirmation. Peter said, you are the Messiah. Human affirmation. In the transfiguration, we have divine confirmation. God says, this is my son. And then, notice 
an order is given. Hear him. We're tired of hearing you. Obey him. Now, why would God have to shut Peter up and say, obey Jesus? Because Peter, every time Jesus would speak, Peter would say, not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. You know? Oh, Lord, uh, you know, others will forsake you, but not me, Lord. You know? Always contradicting Jesus. So God says, this is my beloved son. Obey him. Hear him. Now we come to the aftermath. Look at verse 36. The aftermath. When the voice had ceased, and evidently it's understood that the cloud lifted, Jesus was found alone. Elijah and Moses are gone. Well, they were, they were leaving before. Remember that? When were they leaving? They were leaving back in uh, verse 33. And it happened as they were departing, Peter opened his big mouth. They're gone. And the cloud lifts, and all they see is Jesus, the one that they are to obey. Which means that Jesus alone is the Messiah. He has preeminence over Moses and Elijah. Now, what are they to do? They're to hear him, which means obey. Hear in this case means obey. If I tell a child, don't touch the electrical socket, it means not just listen to me, guess what it means? Not just to hear me, it means obey me. So now, what are they to do? They're to obey him. Okay. Now look at the end of verse 36. They found Jesus alone, but they kept quiet and they told no one of those days, in those days, any of the things that they had seen. They didn't even tell the other nine apostles. They told no one in those days anything they had seen. Now, what motivates their silence? If I were uh, saw something like this, I'd go out and tell everybody, wouldn't you? What motivates their silence? Luke doesn't even tell us, but Matthew does. Okay? So I want you to just keep your finger here just for a second. I want you to go over to Matthew's chapter 17. Why don't they tell anybody? Well, Matthew gives us the answer. In Matthew's story, the transfiguration, on Matthew 17, look down at verse 9. Look down at verse 9. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus, look at this, commanded them, saying what? Tell the vision, what? To no one. Now, what did God say? This is my son, what? Listen to him, obey him. Now, guess, well, what, did he, what was the first thing that Jesus said? Here it is. Tell the vision to no one. That's why they didn't talk. Now, look, that's not all it says, though. Tell the vision to no one, what? Until... The Son of Man is risen from the dead. Once he dies, and once he's risen, then you can tell as many people as you want. Now, why, why did he want them not to say anything until he's resurrected? 
They were there when it happened. They saw his death. They saw the transfiguration. It's because even though they were there and they saw these events, they didn't understand them. You see, you can have facts. You can know the facts and still not have the truth. Would a lawyer in this room say amen to that? <laughs> you can know the facts, but not know the truth. Because you don't understand the implication of all those facts. Now watch, go back to that passage where we just learned. <coughs> back in Luke. So they didn't tell anybody. Now I'm going to jump ahead just to next week just for a second. I want to show you two things here. Look in verse 37. Now it happened on the next day when they came down from the mountain that a great multitude met them, and suddenly there was a man from the multitude who cried out, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, my only son. Ah, it says God has a son. This is God the Father who has a son, his only son, and you're to hear him. Here's a father who has a son, an only son, that Jesus is going to deal with. Now, he heals this kid. Then, I want you to look at verse 44. After Jesus taught the disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. Watch this. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Look, Jesus says, he's going to, the Son of Man is going to die. He's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now look at verse 45. But they did not, what? Understand this thing. They had the facts, but they didn't understand it. Look, why not? Because it was hidden from them, so they did not Perceive it. Jesus had given them the facts, but he didn't explain the details and the implications of the facts. And this is very important. You can have the facts without knowing their meaning. And uh, you can try to explain an event to someone and interpret its significance and give them the facts and they still don't understand. You can preach the gospel and preach the facts of the gospel. And guess what? People don't understand it. They got the facts, but they don't understand it. I have students. I teach the, about the kingdom of God in all my classes at Criswell College. I give them all the facts about the kingdom of God, and then guess what they do? They turn around and try to explain it to someone else, and they can't do it. They can give the facts, but they can't give the meaning to that. So facts and truth don't always equal. You can present facts in such a way that you actually hide the truth. Can you do that in the court of law? Present the facts in such a way that you actually hide the truth. Give the facts, but in, re but in reality, tell a lie. You can be a spin doctor, can't you? You ever watch after political debates? Then the spin doctors come, and they tell you, you just saw the facts, you saw the debate right in front of your own eyes, and guess what they do? Now they go over it and then they spin it. And they give it an explanation that you said, well, that didn't seem like that to me. 
See, so what we have here is we have a transfiguration that three guys are privy to. They get a glimpse into the kingdom. They don't understand it. The other nine don't get a glimpse into that. They're going to have to die and see the kingdom the same time that we do. In fact, if you want to know the truth, we've probably gotten a little more of the glimpse of the kingdom than those other nine guys did because Luke has written the story out for us. And Peter and the apostles in the middle... Can you imagine Peter trying to tell this story? <coughs> First of all, he'd leave, he'd leave his foot in his mouth story out, wouldn't he, if he was telling the story? <coughs> Peter has no idea what's going on. He know what, knows what happened, but he doesn't know what, is, what it means. And so what we have is that only after Jesus dies and he's resurrected will suddenly lights go on and they'll understand it. And at that point they can say, hey, when we talk about the kingdom of God and what it's going to be like, let us tell you. We got a glimpse of it at one time, just for a short period of time. We wish we would have stayed awake the whole time, but we didn't. But we can tell you something this. It's the most glorious thing that you will ever, you can ever imagine. And you want to get in on it. And so Jesus gives them a glimpse into the kingdom. Next week, we will see how he heals a boy showing us even further that in the kingdom there is no sickness. We'll pick up there next week. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Help us to uh, take the facts, maul them over in our mind, like Dr. Brian said, and meditate upon them, chew them, <clears throat> think about them so that we can understand the full implications. Lord, help us not to be people of facts, but help us to be people of truth. Uh, help us to clearly explain the essence and the meaning of the gospel that people can find deliverance through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.